There is no point in having a great menu and a great team and a fantastic restaurant if no one knows about it. Today on Dirty Linen, we are talking to Jodie Crocker. Jodie is someone that I first encountered in her role as a PR, doing uh, working on public relations and media for hospitality businesses. But she's jumped to the other side and she's now working with her partner, Chef Raymond Capaldi, in Wonder Pies, um, which is an extraordinary business that really forged ahead so strongly in 2020. But Jodie, there are so many things that I want to talk to you about today. Firstly, let me welcome you to Dirty Linen. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. So tell me where we find you today. What are you busy with at the moment? Uh, life's changed a lot in the last <laughs> year. Um, so I've uh, put a pause on uh, the PR side um, well, COVID put a pause on that, actually. Um, but now I'm based largely out at um, our um, manu- food manufacturing um, depot in Bulleen. And so, uh, yeah, it's a, a different pace altogether. Um, and when I'm not here, I'm sort of flipping between the um, six shops that we've managed to open in the last uh, eight months or so. How many shops have you got? Uh, so we have six now um, and we're opening our seventh tomorrow, um, which is actually going to be under our new brand, which is Baked Tico. So originally all under the Wonder Pies brand, but um, that was pretty much uh, a reaction to, uh, again, COVID sort of really putting a new pathway around our business March last year. So we always intended to go from wholesale into retail and under Baked Tico, but because we had to move very fast when the virus uh, pretty much shut down our wholesale business in March, um, we just pressed go on all these pop-up retail sites and we did it under the Wonder Prize brand to start with. So it's so interesting, you, you know, your partner Raymond is a chef of great renown. Um, he's uh, done fine dining in many different places through his career. A lot of people will know if, um He's cooking from when he was at Sofitel. He had um, his own restaurants, um, Hair and Grace, for one. Um, cooked with Gary Megan at, I've gone completely blank on the name of the place by the river. What was it? Uh, the Phoenix, yeah. Phoenix, of course, <laughs> yes. Um, too many things to hold in my brain these days. But I know the feeling. <laughs> he's, you know, really known for pushing the boundaries in terms of fine dining and pies, for a lot of people thought was a bit of a departure. But I think, you know, how would you describe that journey and, you know, the place of those fine dining skills in different arenas today? Yeah, so Raymond, um, as you said, I mean, he, he really needs no introduction in, in within the restaurant industry and has been at the forefront of so many uh, movements and trends and training and, and he, um, he certainly uh, made his mark in, in that industry and, for him, he got out of restaurants in, I suppose, what a lot of people would um, consider in good timing, um, considering what the, the industry was heading towards, um, but also accelerated by the whole COVID situation. So he, uh, when Rialto needed to redevelop the site, uh, Heron Grace came to an end um, and he decided to go into food manufacturing, which I think he thought, and I thought, you know, because we've both got a background in food, how different can it be? But it is enormously different um, and just, just on every single level, the allergens, the traceability, the, you know, it's, it's just a completely different ballgame. The 
only common factor between manufacturing and restaurants is just the food element, you know. So he moved, he took all his knowledge um, from a recipe and a creativity point of view and he just decided he wanted to make the best pie for the price. And so I think he felt he really ticked a lot of boxes and, and achieved a lot of things in the, the fine dining world, but he felt that that whole sort of way of dining and that experience was just going to become ever so challenging, which we have seen mm. um, that certainly happen. So I suppose the manufacturing side of things started initially from a bakery point of view, and I think he's, I think he's achieved that. I mean, we do make a great product and, and we're certainly proud of it. Uh, the, the additional layers coming into the, the manufacturing side out at Bulleen um, in support of the industry because I think he's, you know, not, not predicted, but, you know, anyone could see what was coming um, in terms of, you know, skill shortage and food costs and labour costs and all of these things that every restaurant battles with. So the next range he's working on at the moment is um, the Capaldi's signature dish series where he will basically... Uh, release a, um, a, a menu designed for chefs um, of pre-portioned, you know, a la carte options. So he's doing, you know, beef cheek, the duck leg, um, all, all these ready to go, uh, you know, but, but still very high quality and creative dishes um, that chefs can add to their menu. But, you know, the work's done for them. So all of a sudden wow. the, the kitchen that needed, you know, all these layers and because, you know, it's not about taking jobs away. It's just that we all know there's just no, everyone's struggling for staff, you know, and everyone's struggling with the costs and um, gone are the days of having that dream set up in the kitchen where everything can be made from scratch. But it's not just the labour piece that that takes care of. It's also the wastage. So, you know, you don't have a, a restaurant or a bistro doing this whole pork belly. You can now, you know, sort of get in touch with us and, say, I, I just need 20 portions, 30 portions, and then it just reduces all of those things, the labour, the wastage. And I, I know he went out to a few chefs probably 18 months ago, and, of course, they thought, yeah, great idea, but not for me. You know, I'm a chef. I want to I do this our way, the way, we, the way we know, you know, and now all those people are starting to come back to us because, yeah, they're, they're starting to experience, I suppose, exactly what he had predicted, but it probably in a more magnified and much hastier way because of the you know end result of all the COVID um, collapse. Mm, that is so interesting because I know that you know the the skills drain has been one of the things that you know great chefs like Raymond have lamented over the years and as you say you know um, you could have predicted it I could have predicted it he obviously foresaw it with the, that just the way the industry is going with such pressures that you're going to have fewer people in a kitchen who can, you know, break down a pig or whatever it is. Um, but it's inter so interesting and I guess, you know, it's, it's incredibly entrepreneurial to see that lack and that shortage and find an opportunity in there. But it's, um, I don't know, it's a little bit sad and it's sort of one of the things that you, that, you know, uh, I've heard those stories about, you know, all the confit ducks in France come out of, you know, six factories or whatever and they're just sent around to all the bistros. You think, well, that's not great. It's a real blanding out of the um, of the culinary landscape. But at the same time, you know, people do want to eat pork belly in restaurants and it does take time to do it. So I don't know, I can, I can see it from both sides. Oh, and I think Ray also could see it because he's, you know, like you said, he's been on that side and now this side. But it's, 
and yes, it is entrepreneurial and it's, but he's not just driven by, oh, that's the business we want to create. It's because he's seen what's happening to the industry, the only industry he knows. You know, this mm-hmm. is what he's done his whole life. So he is wanting to create a solution without, as you said, sort of just completely blanding out probably the very thing that chefs, you know, go into the work for in the beginning to create, to to cook, to make it from scratch, to own the recipe, to to be proud of the dish, you know, and he's trying to say you can still make it, you can still make it your own, um, but I understand if, if someone came into Raymond's kitchen back in the Sofitel days, back in the Phoenix days, and pitched to him what he's pitching to chefs now, <laughs> I can only imagine what his reaction would have been. And I think that's why he's probably one of the best people to actually be doing, you know, doing this and to be sort of meeting with these chefs and explaining what he's doing because um, he's just, he's saddened by it as well. But it's just the reality, you know, it's um, it's his solution to trying to keep more doors open, you know, and um, yeah, I mean, we, we all love, love the industry and um, seeing what's happening. He, he's just trying to yeah, fill some gaps, I suppose. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. So, of course, you're not here to speak for Raymond. I really <laughs> want to hear more about about you. So tell us about your role in the business. What do you do? Yeah, so I, when Ray first kicked off Wonder Pies in late 2017, I was very much focused on social set media and I'd left Crown after um, what felt like a really quick eight years. <laughs> Time flew there and was really lucky to work on some extraordinary projects and just the time came I needed to go back out onto my own um, and I became very focused on um, my client base which was sort of spread across major events and chefs and hospitality um, and so for the next three years uh, really knuckled into that and on you know net, right next to me Ray was launching Wonder Pies and it started to to grow and grow and I sort of started to fall a little out of love with PR and particularly in um, the final, well, the sort of the year in lead up to the, the co- to COVID landing, um, as you know, one of my clients was George Columbaris, and so um, that was a, a tough, a tough time and a tough thing to witness. Uh, and I lost a couple of clients through all the bushfires, and then COVID sort of swung around, and I just decided to take the opportunity to pause because. Um, being major events in hospitality, all of my client base went with COVID. So I only really stepped into Wonder Pies full-time from about March. Uh, In between that, I was in the background doing all the boring stuff like the numbers and processes and all the things chefs don't like to necessarily do. So Mm. Ray Ray was very happy to carve that off into my camp. Um, And I just really started feeling uh, an interest build in learning more about business uh, and I was quite fascinated with all the layers that are involved with manufacturing Um, and then I just started to really get a taste for it and put myself in here full time. So I look after a lot of the process, uh, the the numbers, the the growth and just a lot of the admin which has never been my interest and so I leave the creative to him. Of course that's where he, he shines and we sort of meet up in the middle really nicely. We bring a very different skill base to the table. And then here we are in a bit of a retail growth spurt, I suppose you could call it. So, yeah, I, I just I, I kind of do 
a bit of everything. <laughs> I don't mm. really have hard to define. <laughs> Let's talk a bit more about about the time working with George. I mean, obviously, um, you know, he he there were the payment. Uh, "Quote unquote scandals that um, befell him um, or swirled around him for that period. Can you talk about what you what that meant for you? Like, what did you have to do, and what was it like? Yeah, so I was working with George for probably about two and a half years, but I really only covered off his personal PR and his restaurant PR. So when all this sort of, I came in after the first round. That's right, uh, and then." I didn't, we, we obviously thought that was pretty much done and dusted. I really didn't sort of look backwards. My role was probably to look forwards and and re-establish, uh, sorry, the sentiment around him. But the thing is that when I did join him, people loved him. You know, he was he was the star of the show with MasterChef. You know, it was always George. Uh, and his restaurants were busy and his team were happy. And so I, I, I didn't really clock what had happened because we didn't we just we just wanted to go forward mm. then then the next round after the investigation uh we knew that was coming up and i suppose i yeah it, it was a hard thing to watch because i i didn't handle his crisis communications i even though at crown obviously looked after a lot of curly things uh that was in someone else's hands and i think i would have done things a little bit differently because I know the truth. Like I know the deep detail of everything that happened and unfortunately part of the reason I sort of fell out of love working with some of the media is their ability to tell a story just in the headline <laughs> and for it to not always be correct. And people don't read. They don't read long-form articles. They just read a Facebook post or a headline and they make their judgment and they make their call. It's very hard to change sentiment once there's just this flood of juicy information, you know, because he's a celebrity and all of this, like the media really just took him down. They destroyed him. And mm. I even found, I suppose, the people that I thought would probably back him and be on his side, I think the, the wave was just too large and it's almost like um, there was just a small handful of people, including yourself, who really um, wanted the detail and wanted the truth, but I just the damage was done. And mm. it was very, very hard to see. And it, I just sort of stepped, even though I wasn't driving that whole situation, I was still on the sidelines and it was hard to see it from a professional point of view, but it was really hard to watch it from a personal point of view because he actually is an incredible guy, you know, and he has been caught up in something that is was just so brutal and so unfair. But um, it, it's, yeah, I think the media, and as we know with this last year, so, yeah, the media can be really irresponsible sometimes and the fallout is is devastating for people. Mm. So what's the truth, you know, what is the truth that people didn't see or didn't have the time to look at or weren't prepared to, to um, spend the time, yeah, learning? Uh, I, I think that there is just a lot of context that was lost uh, about where and how and who George, how he got there, who he was, what he did in the company. Um, I think it was very easy to just go, oh, he's a rich, big celebrity. Um, he's disconnected from the business. He doesn't care, which is just so untrue. Like he was in those restaurants every night. He trained people. He 
grew people in the company and the company grew so rapidly around him. Like he literally, you know, and I, I understand because I'm in the middle of it myself now and I suppose working in the industry and with different awards and overtimes and fair work and all these things, a, a huge portion of my job even in a business this small, which is nothing compared to the size of George's business, mm. the amount of time I spend ensuring that we're compliant, you know, and it changes every day and it's changed more in the last 10 years than it ever has previously. And I just think that, yes, mistakes were made, but it wasn't out of anything greedy or vindictive or ruthless. It was just a fast-growing business and at the end of the day, he he was a chef. He was just he, he was he started out cooking. He got a TV show. He all of a sudden had twenty two restaurants, <laughs> and mm. so I can understand it from a small business owner's perspective. Um, when you are chartering new territory, whilst trying to be the person George was, which was he would do anything for anyone. I mean, he was my favourite client. I, I could ask him to do anything, and it was never a problem for charity, for training, appearances at schools, whatever it was, he said yes. His diary was like nothing I'd ever seen before, but <laughs> nothing was too much for him to do. Mm. So I think I feel like they've missed the mark on who he is and it's very easy to make someone look um, like someone they're not when they're in the public profile. Yeah, well, I'd say his diary may have been full, but one of the things that would never have been in his diary was, you know, sit down and go through the award and work <laughs> out the, like, do the do the pay sheets. Like, that was, there were other people in the business who were supposed to be taking care of that. Well, that's right. And, and I get it because when you're a director of a company, which I am, it, you know, the rule is it doesn't matter, you're the director of the company, so it all lands on you. Yeah. Which is a bit unfair when I've got, HR people, I have accountants, I have lawyers, I have bookkeepers, I have lines of management within my business who all get paid to take care of their camp. And I just think something, and I, I, I don't, I can't go into the detail, something wasn't taken care of over the growth of that company and it all got pinned on George. Mm, yeah. I mean, I think the people that were going for it, and I would say it was media as well as um, Hospital Voice Union, like they were definitely looking for high-profile scapegoats for for a reason, which was to shake the industry up and to, you know, force people to look close, more closely at those things and to ensure compliance. So I, I think, like, you know, that everyone knows that the, that hospitality, like many industries, wasn't compliant with the awards. Um, like that's, you know, no one would have, no one would deny that. And I think it is much more compliant now. But I think, which you know, you could say is good. Well, it, it, let's say it's good. We can. It's a separate discussion to say whether you think the awards are, you know, correct and fair to all parties. Um, so, but there's just so much collateral damage along the way, um, as you say. There were the. the yeah, I think he was, yeah. he, was, uh, he was he was scapegoated and I don't think it was all fair. No, and I do get that to, to make change, you know, you need to make noise and I, I totally understand that can mean it comes down to certain individuals that hold influence, whether it's negative or positive. And, and you know, the formula behind it makes sense, but then, you know, when you see what his family went through and what his team went through, it, it was just... Yeah, it was very brutal and it seemed out of line with the rest of the people that were 
maybe under the spotlight in different industries. So because, you know, the yeah the, the, the supermarket chains or the yeah. retail chains, they didn't have a celebrity MasterChef judge on their, you know, their books. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it sort of, yeah, it, it was it was very bitter and um, I'm just impressed with, I, I think he handled it. I, I can only look at it from, if, if I was to go through that, you know, where would I be? What would I do? And I just think um, George is, he, he'll be back and I think he'll be, you know, wiser and stronger and people have formed their opinion. There's lovers and haters and, you know, there's, I, I don't find there's too many people on the fence with George. It's either love or hate and I think it's unfortunate but I, I think he'll he'll be back Mm. Well, he's starting to make appearances and um, like through lockdown, he was more more present on social media. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I think he's, yeah, he's he's got a lot of life still to live and a lot of things left to do, I'm sure. So, mm. yeah. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about another um, interesting client of yours or employer in this case, Crown. Um, Crown's been in the news the last few days because they've been found to be an unfit uh, entity to hold a license to run the casino in Sydney. What was it like working for Crown? Like, give us a bit of an insight into that massive machine. Look, I I read these things and I see these things, uh, you know, constantly in the media. And to be honest, and this is I'm just speaking from my experience, it feels like they're talking about another business because the Crown I worked for and that I saw and experienced was. Just, uh, I mean, it had very little to do with the very high-end corporate and gaming side, but I suppose if all I know is that was my employer for eight years and it was some of the most extraordinary years of my life and they gave me uh, experience and opportunity and responsibility for some incredible projects. You know, I, I worked on some of the most amazing events and looked after incredibly interesting people from all around the world and launched great restaurants and I, I can't really, my memories are fond, you know, I, I knew I had to leave but that was only because I wanted to go and do my own thing again because at the end of the day I always saw myself working for myself. So I came out of Crown stronger and wiser and very, very much inspired to to do a lot of things and it taught me how to do you know, layers of things and multitask and take on a lot of pressure. And um, I feel like I left with more tools to run my own business. So when I see all this stuff, um, and my role was quite senior in the company, but when I see all this stuff, I, I, I almost just cannot relate to it. So, so interesting. Yeah, because I really, you know, and obviously my role in PR, I used to look after the hotels, the restaurants and the events, like everything that sort of happened there from a lifestyle perspective, fell under my folio. But uh, even the people I worked with, I, mean, I worked for the incredible Anne Peacock, who taught me so much, and Peter Crinis and Mark Holmes, all these people in food and beverage and, and PR were so incredible what they did. Like they were just at the top of their game. And I just felt like I was working with these athletes of the, you know, the corporate world. So I never really saw all this stuff. Um, and in PR, I suppose, yeah, we do take the brand and we, you know, find the messaging to take it to the consumer. And that's, you know, we've, we have run world-class hotels. We are the home of events in Melbourne. We have, 
you know, a global restaurant portfolio. So that's all I remember about Crown is mm. being able to work on some of the best of the best, you know, and yeah, it's, it, it's just almost strange to read this stuff. Give us a flavour of some of those extraordinary experiences, like whether it's a restaurant opening or an amazing event, just like, yeah, take us into that, into that world a little bit. Uh, so I suppose with the, the restaurant side of things, uh, that, that whole redevelopment was led by Peter Crinis and he probably one of the most dynamic people I've worked for and he just gave me, he, I, I was just thrilled to be able to win his trust and uh, he gave me the, the task of, I suppose, changing perception of dining at Crown, um, particularly within the media, because I know the media's perception of Crown and particularly when it comes to the food critics, there was a, a real challenge I had on my hands to try and get them to see past Crown, past the casino and walk into those restaurants and know that although under the roof of Crown, which not everyone, I suppose, is a fan of. There are teams in every restaurant, there's executive chefs in every restaurant that are operating as a business within that business. And I really wanted to get the restaurants on the radar of the media for their own merit, you know, because they are responsible for their own P&Ls, they're responsible for their customers' experience and their menus. And it was just for a long time, everyone sort of viewed these restaurants as just part of the big beast of Crown. Yeah. And so I really enjoyed stepping into that role to try and really get the attention they deserved, bring the chefs to the forefront, not the brands. You know, it was like, yes, this is Nobu, but Nobu's not here. <laughs> yep. but Heather's, Heather Zeng's here and she was, she's the talent. She's who we talk about, you know, at that time. Um, or this is number eight, but this is John Lawson. You know, and so trying to bring these personalities to the front instead of just these these brands along the river at Crown, you know. So I really enjoyed doing that. And in, in that time, we started to see some of the restaurants finally win hats. Um, and I'm def definitely not taking responsibility for that. But, you know, that's all the work of the restaurant and the chefs and the team. But I think it was just trying to bridge that gap between the perception of Crown and maybe the media's um, preconceived ideas of that so that was a, that was an ongoing role that I loved was trying mm. to highlight the restaurants and then they started to layer in you know I went over to Los Angeles and of all places spent a week in Compton um, <laughs> filming and interviewing the um, Kevin Bloodsoe who was going to come over and open up Bloodsoe's barbecue which is just like this iconic um, uh, barbecue place in Compton and he you know that that was extraordinary and then obviously Every, no, no one missed the fact that we opened the Fat Duck for a six-month stint uh, and working with Heston um, was an experience I'll never forget. <laughs> and, so, uh, and I'm sure it was just, just seeing that whole project get off the ground, like from, a, from an idea that seemed so nuts. You know, we're going to bring the Fat Duck to Australia for six months. And I remember when it first landed on the table, I thought, there's no way this is ever going to get off the ground. But it, it did. And... It was amazing that the whole team came over here and just embedded themselves and we got global attention out of that project. You know, we, it was, there was so much, so much interest we had to go to ballot for the limited seats we had available. Yeah. And, yeah, so that was, that was extraordinary because I actually remember when I was, uh, 
when we launched the ballot. And I was actually over in San Francisco at the time because uh, Crown had sent me over to train uh, with Facebook because I also, under my portfolio, looked after the launch of, launch of their social media. And uh, I was sitting there and an alarm went off um, around the table in, when we were doing a sort of conference call and everyone stopped because it was their alert to register for the ballot. For, wow. To, to dine at Fat Duck. I was like, I'm in San Francisco. And, <laughs> and these guys are all entering this ballot to dine in Melbourne. And I suppose it was that realisation of the power of a brand, the power of PR, and that's what Crown wanted to do with the Fat Duck. It was to put Melbourne, Melbourne dining, Melbourne tourism on the map. So that's, I think, another side that not everyone sees with Crown. Like, they do have bigger picture. It's not all about this casino. And, you know, they, they knew the cost associated with bringing the Fat Duck here, but they also knew the value it would bring to the state. So, yeah. you know, it was, it was a huge, huge project. And I, um, yeah, I still, I still smile when I think back because it almost doesn't feel real. Well, it was a definitely, uh, the, it was an occasion where the restaurant and that experience became so much bigger than the notion that it was at Crown. Um, it was, yeah, it was extraordinarily exciting and I don't know anyone that, you know, was interested in food in Melbourne who didn't want to go there. Um, and it was great. You know, I was lucky enough to go there and it was extraordinary and it really did feel like, um, yeah, a real win for Melbourne. Mm. Yeah, it absolutely did. And I remember we got the data through from the registrations for the ballot and we got something like 520,000 registrations but I can't, I actually can't recall the number of co uh, countries, but it was global. Like there was people registering from everywhere. So I think that the value of that, of doing that, the, is, it's probably priceless. Mm. I wonder how it's all going to shake down because obviously, you know, Crown doesn't have any high rollers coming in at the moment. Um, you know, the, uh, dinner by Heston, which is what the Fat Duck um, transitioned into, has closed. Um, yeah, I feel like the shine's definitely gone off it. So it will be interesting to see how it, um, yeah, how it travels over the next few years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. I, think, I don't think yeah. anyone can really predict that. I mean, that goes for pretty much everything. I mean, I, I can't predict anything in business at the moment. You know, I would usually look at, you know, sales reports and previous years and trends, you know, to, to do my forecasting. And at the moment, my forecast is, well, we'll just wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, Jody, there'll be a lot of people listening to this who own restaurants or who work in restaurants and would love some of your wisdom from a PR um, angle. If you're in a restaurant and you wish you had more people coming through the door or you wish your customers would come back or you want to get some media attention, what are some tips that you can give people? Yeah, that's, that's a dumb one actually for some reason. Um, it's almost like this is, I'm referring back to another life. Um, look, I think that there's a lot of value in, in requiring the right PR because there's a lot of, like in any industry, there's a lot of people that say they do something or they specialize in something. And I know that there's, in every industry, there's good, good and bad, but there are some extraordinary PRs out there that really give you a strategy. And there is no point in having a great menu and a great team and a fantastic restaurant if no one knows about it. And 
PR doesn't have to be expensive and there's people out there that can fit, the, you know, a retainer or support to, to restaurants to suit what they need. So I, I, recommend, I recommend trying to find the time and allocate even a small budget to a really strong PR out there. I think restaurants need... I, I see the most success out of restaurant PR when they choose freelancers as opposed to sort of big agencies because I feel like the the freelancers, they, they, they really drill down into it and get the nuances of each restaurant. There's nothing, there's no sort of pre-cookie-cutter strategy applied. They, they really get to know and what will make it tick because you need, every restaurant and that story needs to be sort of drawn out of it. I think the biggest advice is don't expect results in two weeks or six weeks. You have to do the time and the distance because people are also exhausted out there. You know, there is a lot of information and it's all negative. So if you can <laughs> find someone to go out with some good news, some good news that relates back to you and your restaurant, you're going to get the attention of people because people want some good news. Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, it is that it is finding that narrative, isn't it, for your business and um, getting finding that cut through, whatever it might be, whatever that point of difference might be, and then finding out how to communicate it, how to find that audience. And as you say, it's never going to be just like a one hit. It's going to be about building that relationship um, and, and, and a connection. Yeah, and that's right. And I think people don't realise how much they know about their current customer and, you know, a smart PR that can then fill in the gaps around and support you by finding that narrative because you know how many chefs I would speak to would tell me these fascinating stories about products or dishes or the, their history and I'm like, why is that not even up on your website? You know, because they just think, oh, that's just me, you know, and so mm. what, you've got to remember what's interesting to the public probably pretty dull to yourself because it's just what you do every day or you know so it's it is finding that narrative it's it's really about storytelling and I think I think that you know restaurants at the moment I mean everyone's just so exhausted it is tough it's very tough but um you've just got to find that <laughs> part to survive and that will help if you get a great PR or, or you, there's someone internally um, that has the ability to, that has good communication, and if you can't find the budget for a PR, then, like, at least identify something or do it yourself internally, but, yeah, find that narrative and um, start telling your story of why you're here and why you survived. Mm. And, I mean, one thing that just strikes me is it could even just be one dish. It could be or even one aspect of one dish. Like you can start really small and really particular when you're trying to get something out there. And you do, I think, when your message is really quite tight and defined, then uh, it's easier, perhaps easier to cut through all that noise that's out there and to, you know, wake someone up from their exhaustion with this interesting, you know, snippet of news. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, you've got to remember the, the, the media and their their need to publish the most extraordinary amount of content is like it's just exhausting what they have to consistently come up with. And so I think, yes, there's a perception of, oh, there's limited media, there's limited space, there's limited opportunities, but not really. I mean, with, with this digital space where they're publishing so much every day, it's, you know, you have to 
spend some time looking at the broadsheets or whatever and, and you'll soon realise the hooks that they look for mm. and you'll soon realise you're really capable of creating that hook today. You know, it's, it's taking that dish, giving it that story, tweaking it, attaching it to a hallmark occasion or whatever it is, but there's opportunities every day to get your restaurant in into the media, but it does take planning, like what are you doing for all these, you know, special days, signature days, public holidays. But I also understand that, you know, when you're in the kitchen or on the floor all day, that stuff always seems to come last. Mm. I love it, Jodie. Super useful tips and really fantastic to learn more about what you're up to. Um, good luck with the launch of the new shop um, this week. Is that a Wonder Pies or a Baked Tico? Uh, no, that is Baked Tico. So that's our first Baked Tico. It will be in Heidelberg Heights or McLeod. <laughs> I know that sounds confusing, but we're right on the cusp of both. So um, we uh, wanted to always go out with Baked Tico and we feel like we're ready now. We made you know, a lot of mistakes along the way. We were the first to admit it, but we were in a we were in a rush to open these shops to make sure we could keep our team at um, the Bulleen headquarters employed. And we, we managed to keep everyone employed and we managed to even double our team in the last year. So there's, um, there's I suppose, a bit of satisfaction, um, but we are exhausted and we know that we can improve <laughs> because, um, you know, we sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes we're sort of awake at night going, Oh gosh, you know, thinking about service and products and, and all of those things that, you know, we see, but we, we feel like we are going to iron out along the way, but we haven't, we haven't got to them yet. So now we finally have the chance to reset and we will launch Baked Tico tomorrow and we will change Essendon and Northcote both into Baked Tico's and any future shops, including Port Melbourne in a couple of weeks will also be under our new brand. Yay. Well, congratulations. And yeah, all the best with it. Cannot wait to eat all the things that you guys bake. Um, So good to have a chance to catch up today, Jodie. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Danny. And before I sign out, thank you for everything you've done over this entire 12 months. You've been such a voice for the industry, just a clear, consistent line of information when it's been most needed. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All right. I'll speak to you soon, guys. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We wanna hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. Yeah. Sorry. It's, you, you, I'll just let, it's just my daughter coming home. I'm just going to open the door. Hang on a sec.